Good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some spread around, and you can look down and you'll see a black Bible nearby. We'll be on page 869 if you want to follow along with us and kind of track with the story as we read through the text. So page 869, Luke chapter 10. We're continuing our series called Meet Jesus. And this series, the purpose of it is to challenge those of us that already know Jesus uh, to reevaluate if we are drifting from seeing and savoring just how great Jesus really is. And so these are good reminders for us, helping us to grow in our faith and our knowledge in him. And for some of us, we really have never been introduced to the Jesus of Scripture. And so this is a great opportunity for those of you that have only heard uh, myths and stories and uh, Sunday school tales about who Jesus is to actually see what the primary records tell us about uh, Jesus. So this week we're calling it Jesus Meets a Theology Professor. Jesus Meets a Theology Professor. The word in the Greek is namakos, which is translated kind of depending on your Bible as teacher of the law, uh, sometimes scribe, sometimes law teacher, sometimes lawyer. Um, And what this means is this guy had a PhD in the Old Testament. This guy was the, I should say the equivalent, right? They didn't call it PhD back in the first century, but this guy knew the Old Testament upside down and backwards. He was the top, the top expert of his day in the Bible. So he would have been like a professor, an expert, someone who had published and written and knew all the right answers. And so it's going to be a challenging story. The other thing that's interesting is this is one of the most famous parables in the Bible. This is one of the most well-known parables in the Bible, sometimes called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Any of you ever heard of the Good Samaritan? Most of you? Or, or five of you? Okay, that's cool. Um, well, all right, uh, this is, you're in the right place. You're going to learn about it today, okay? Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All right, we're done. But it keeps going. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that same road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let me pray for us and ask God to help us with this text today. Lord, we ask for your help and we pray that you'd meet us here. Um, This is a favorite story for a lot of people. Um, Some people have never heard the story. God, for all of us, we pray that you would give us open hearts and open minds, that uh, your spirit would help us to hear from you. We thank you that you are a God that speaks, and you speak to us through your word, and and we thank you for not leaving us without 
instruction, without words. We pray that you'd come to us this morning and help us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was really interesting timing this week as I was preparing for this sermon and my mind was filled with these ideas of someone who was very smart being tempted by thinking that they would be saved by being very smart. Uh, I was kind of percolating on this idea. You know, there's this temptation we all have to think that we're saved by the stuff we know. And I got a phone call from someone and the secretary came to me and said, there's someone on the line that said they want to speak to a pastor. And that's, that's kind of, um, I hate to say this because, you know, you might need to call me and speak to a pastor, but I kind of immediately have negative thoughts when I have that kind of phone call, right? Because usually when it's a happy conversation, people call and want to speak to Dave or to Stephen or one of the people on staff, right? And they know us. Uh, but this one was kind of vague. And, and usually that means it's like a salesman. Um, sometimes when it's not a salesman, it means it's someone that kind of has some gripe and they want to have, you know, they kind of want to pick a fight with someone over the phone. Turned out this was the second one. This was someone that wanted to pick a fight over the phone. Um, so I didn't know what it was going to be. Like I said, first thought was kind of negative. Who knows what this is going to be? But just prayed immediately, Lord, give me an opportunity to share more of you with this person, right? I don't know what this is going to be. My first thought of it is it's going to be something negative, but, but help me here. Uh, the guy that called me was a, a Jehovah's Witness, which is a, a sect of people that are really offended by our belief that God is... One God and three persons, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're very, they're very offended by that. Um, and his kind of method of dealing with me was to test me and show me my failure in my thinking. Show me my failure of having the right answers. So again, it was just it was fascinating timing to me that, that that's what I was studying this week. That there's this guy testing Jesus, not that I'm Jesus by any means, but this kind of testing attitude who saw his duty as pointing out, hey, you don't have the right answers, I do. And I was really taken aback by the conversation because I don't, I mean, I have people debate with me quite often, but he was quite aggressive, a lot more aggressive than normal. And so I was just surprised by that, surprised at how it really seemed like his goal was to kind of tear me down, to make me doubt myself, to show me all the stuff he knew. You know, he kept talking about the Greek and Hebrew, and I'm like, well, I I have been to seminary. I do know the Greek and Hebrew for these words. You know, I mean, I, I'm, it's not like I've never studied this before, but he just was kind of hammering at me. We talked for about an hour. Um, it was really interesting. So pray for him when you get a chance. Um, I, I think we parted ways, not really having gotten anywhere. It's like my next appointment came in. I was like, you know, sorry, man, I got to go. As the conversation moved on, it, it kind of got more personal, more attacking. Like he just wanted to show me how smart he was and how dumb I was. Like that, that was kind of his primary goal. I, I think, sadly, any of us can fall into that, um, especially those of us that really value God's Word. Because we think God really has spoken to us in His Word. We value it. We study it. And, and there's something, though, that can slip where we begin to love what He says more than Him, right? Jesus talked about the Pharisees saying that you think that you get eternal life from the scriptures, but you miss me, the one that the scriptures testify about. And so uh, we need to make sure that we're more in love with Jesus than in the things that we know about what Jesus said. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's the confrontation, the kind of confrontation that Jesus has with this theology professor. We have to beware of of any kind of self-justification. I'm saved because I know stuff. No, we're saved because God is good and he's gracious in Jesus. We're saved because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done. 
The first thing I want us to see is, is this test that the professor gives him. It's just in the first verse, and this will be kind of a little short point, and then we'll move on from here. Verse 25 says, Behold, a lawyer, teacher of the law, expert in the law, stood up to test him, to put him to the test. The word is uh, parazzo, which is the same word we would use in the New Testament for tempting, testing. Uh, James made it clear, and we looked at this back in the fall, where James says, uh, God isn't tempted towards evil or tested towards evil. You know, there's this distinction. Uh, But the word can be used of God, but it's always used positively of God. So the way I would explain this is that generally this is a negative word, and generally when people are doing it, it's bad, right? God can test someone, but it's only in the sense of testing someone to see their faith, right? Like testing for success. Um, So we see that sometimes in, in what God did with Abraham, right? He was giving Abraham an opportunity to display his faith. But in general, James is making it very clear that, that God doesn't ever test someone towards evil or try to entice someone to do something that is wrong uh, or to demean or to tear them down. Here, it's pretty clear that this guy's goal was more the negative human use of this word, the negative use of testing, tripping, um, trying to tear him down. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So it wasn't that he really wanted to know the answer, right? Because he already knows all the answers. He wants to trip up. Jesus. He wants to show that Jesus doesn't know the answer, or Jesus misunderstands the answer. Um, it reminded me of um, this kind of literary background I had. I, I was a really well-educated child, and I watched a lot of these shows when I was a kid, and it was this character, Wiley Coyote, and the Roadrunner, right? And Wiley Coyote thought he was really smart. He thought he was really smart, but he kept getting one-upped by the roadrunner. He was always trying to set a trap for the roadrunner based on how intelligent he was, but it never really worked out. And that was, you know, again, this is just kind of the rich literary heritage I come from. That's the first thought I had of this guy trying to trap Jesus. You know, there he is trying to light the rocket so he can chase the roadrunner, and the wily e. Coyote accidentally lights his tail. And that's kind of the same thing we have happening here with this professor, this expert, in God's word. He lays out a test for the whole purpose of trapping Jesus. That's the context here. One of the things I think that's important for us to think about is how do we interact with people and specifically how are we interacting with God? Are we interacting with God? Are we interacting with Jesus from a position of critical doubt, testing, trapping, trying to trip him up, trying to prove that he's really not good, that he's really not gracious, that he really doesn't have our best interest in mind? Or do we approach with an open mind? Another application I'd like us to think about from this is that as teachers and as leaders, and all of us teach somebody, right? Even if you're not a public school teacher, you're not a commander, you're not a professor, you you have some area in your life where you're leading someone. Maybe it's as a parent, maybe it's just as an older brother to a younger brother, you know, but in some area of your life, you have an opportunity to to teach and lead other people. And, And what I want you to think about and remember is that the best teachers and leaders always recognize that they have something to learn. And so we see just in this first little point that that this guy is kind of coming at it from the wrong angle, seeing himself as the expert that has it all figured out, trying to trip up Jesus. And we'll see as the story unfolds, trying to show how much he knows so that he can trap and trip up Jesus. Well, I think the best teachers, obviously, sometimes as a teacher, you just know the person you're teaching doesn't know the thing and you need to teach it to them, right? There's a very common sense level of, yeah, it's your job to teach them stuff. But you have to have that attitude of, I've always got something to learn. 
even from my beginning student that maybe doesn't know anything, they're made in the image of God, and I have something to learn here. And so I think that's an important thing to remember. We'll, we'll move on now and look at kind of the meat of the story is Jesus dealing with the professor's heart. The professor's heart, that's really the issue in this story. Jesus aims for the heart. And what I want you to see here as we seek to understand how Jesus deals with people is that Jesus aims for people's heart even when they don't offer it, right? We've all been in those kinds of relationships where people hold back. They don't let us know what's going on. They don't tell us their real motives. They don't share uh, what's underneath what they're thinking. Jesus is always going after people's heart even when people don't offer their heart to him. Look at verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? That's Jesus answering his question by asking a question. This is a beautiful example of how Jesus interacts with people. So, so how Jesus teaches people is by aiming for the heart and primarily starts off by asking questions. One of my favorite teachers is an apologist named Francis Schaeffer, uh, who died in the 80s. He had a, a great ministry in the 60s uh, to people who doubted the faith. Did a lot of ministry in Switzerland, kind of like a, a hippie evangelist, I guess you might say, right? Weird dude with a funny beard, and he wore knickers, and he lived in the Swiss Alps, um, and he had this ministry to people that doubted the faith, and they would come to him, and they'd just work out the questions they had about the Bible and about the faith in this kind of weird commune place in Switzerland. Um, but he had some great wisdom. And Francis Schaeffer said this multiple times. He said, if you only have one hour to share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone, you only have one hour, he said, what you should do is you should ask questions for 55 minutes and then spend five minutes explaining the gospel, telling them who Jesus is. 55 minutes of asking questions, five minutes of explaining the truth. The truth is really very simple. We can explain the truth of we're sinners Jesus is our Savior. He died on the cross, took our sins upon himself. He gives us his righteousness. End of story. I probably did that in 15 seconds, right? Probably don't even need five minutes. He's saying, ask questions for 55 minutes. Explain the truth for five. And this is not some kind of parlor trick where it's like, you know, if you ask people questions for 55 minutes, you'll wear them down and then they'll be open. You know, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, actually want to know what people are thinking. You, You should actually be interested in their heart. Where are they seeking salvation? Why are they saying what they're saying? What is the gripe that they have? And where did that come from? And where did it start? And honor people. Give them dignity that what they think and what they believe matters and and listen to them. And only then will we be able to show them how the gospel fits into their story. Another interesting thing, Jerem Bars points this out in his book, Learning Evangelism from Jesus. He says that, Jesus constantly asked questions when he was sharing the gospel with people. You know, we think of sharing the gospel as saying these things about, this is the good news, this is who Jesus is. You're a sinner, he's a savior, this is what he did, he died on the cross for you. We think of it in that little, very compressed um, story, which is the heart of it, right? That's That's the heart of the gospel. But Jesus, when he would share the gospel with people, he would ask questions again and again. This is just one instance of it. Bars charts it out. He says, in the book of Matthew, Jesus asks questions of people 94 times. 94 times in the book of Matthew. In the book of Mark, it's 59 times. In the book of Luke, it's 82 times. In the book of John, it's 49 times. I mean, it's just overwhelming that this is Jesus' method. He aims for the heart. He asks questions. So here, again, he starts with a question. Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 
You tell me. What's your answer? How do you find eternal life? I want to hear your side of the story. That's where Jesus starts the conversation. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This was a common understanding, the summary of the law, same summary of the law that Jesus would give. He would use slightly different words, and that's an important thing to notice as we read the Bible. It's okay that in one place they gave a list of four ways to love God, and in another place it gave a list of three ways to love God. You know, don't let those kind of things freak you out. What he's saying is love God with everything you have. Love God with everything you have and love your, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of the law. That's the summary of what it looks like to walk with God, to have real eternal life. And so this guy gives the same answer that Jesus gives elsewhere. It's the same answer that would have been commonly understood by the Jewish people. And Jesus says, you're right. You answered correctly. Do this and you will live. He's like, okay, good answer. See you later. Moving on. But it doesn't stop there. Luke 10, 29. Look at that. He says, but he, the professor, the teacher of the law, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's just clarify so we can be clear that I do have eternal life and I am an expert and I do know the right things. Who, who is my neighbor according to you? And so here's another way that Jesus focuses on the heart. He gives him a story that, number one, focuses on action more than theory, right? He doesn't give him the wiggle room of debating these expert PhD ideas about the law, but he actually talks about action. And he also engages the imagination. Jesus does this often, right? He uses parables. He uses stories to kind of come in the side door, right? We can, we can sometimes hold things at arm's length and not deal with what God wants us to do when we talk about it in abstract idea form. But when there's this concrete story, sometimes it just kind of it slips in the side and Jesus is able to address his heart this way. So he tells a story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So I just want to kind of stop there for a second and recognize, first of all, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a rough place. Um, Commonly, this is where bandits would hang out. So I don't know where you came from, but there are probably neighborhoods that your mom taught you not to go to, right? Uh, when I was a kid, it was Colleen. I was told not to go to Colleen, right? So <laughs> it's true. That's how I was raised. Um, there, there are these rough places that you're told bad things are going to happen there, right? Be careful or, or don't go downtown at night, right? Or don't drive on the street by yourself, right? You know, you've all kind of learned those kinds of things. And here, He's saying that that's, that's where this happened. It happened in the place where you expect these kind of bad things to happen. So, okay, makes sense. This is what we expect to happen. Guy gets beat up. He's in the wrong place, the wrong part of town. Robbers beat him, strip him, leave him half dead. The priest was going down the same road, but walks over on the other side. Now, a priest would have had good reasons to do that because it would have made him ceremonially unclean to get involved. And so the way I would say this is it would have caused him great discomfort, um, it would have caused him a distraction from his other duties of helping people. Um, But still, Jesus is very pointedly showing this guy, who's a professional people helper, decided not to help this person so he could help the abstract people that weren't in the room, that weren't present, right? 
I mean, this is hugely convicting for me, right? I'm also a professional people helper. And I can fall into the circumstance of thinking, no, I've got more important things to do. I don't have time for you. I have to think about or I need to write a book about helping people. I can't help you right now that's bleeding and half dead in front of me. And then it's replayed again with the Levite. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, um, there's not a really straight one-to-one comparison, but just to be uh, general or rough about it, it'd be kind of like saying a, a pastor and a counselor, right? Or, or maybe a, uh, a counselor and a deacon at a church. You know, I mean, in general, he's saying these are two people that everybody expects are going to stop and help him, and they don't. They don't because it's going to inconvenience them. It's going to cost them money. It's going to cost them time. It's going to mess up their life, so they don't do it because they have other theoretical people that they need to help. And then this is like the zinger in the story, verse 33, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan, he just said a bad word. I want you to understand that. Jesus just said a bad word, Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So when we refer to the story as the parable of the good Samaritan, that is an oxymoron to Jews. To us, it's not, right? None of us are Jews, or most of us aren't. You know, we're Gentiles. We don't care about their issues of race and religion in the first century. So we're far removed from this issue. But this was like, um, and a good Nazi walked up and had compassion. You know I mean? We're just like, no, that just doesn't even make sense. That's grotesque. That's repulsive. This was a repulsive story. It was doubly so for the, the Jews of the first century. It was a racism issue, and it was a religious cult, cultish issue, right? So the Samaritans had a religious problem. They were basically cult followers. They didn't really faithfully follow the God of the Old Testament. They'd mixed it with the other religions of their day, and they were also of the wrong race. They had mixed with other people, um, other races, other tribes, and so they were doubly looked down upon. And again, for us, we've got cultural distance, right? Jews would have had a problem with us racially. Those of us that are non-Jews, Jews would have had a problem with us religiously as worshipers of Jesus, right? So we have a distance here, but just understand that Jesus is introducing someone that they thought was a bad guy. They thought was a bad guy. And he's saying he had compassion. He was neighborly. He was loving. So this is that kind of side door into the heart. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. So we have a story, an example of love, concrete love. This is what love looks like. But again, don't forget it's shocking. It is a shocking story, and he's engaging this man's imagination, coming in a side door to his heart to address the prejudices that this theology professor had, his definition of what love was and what neighborliness is. And again, I believe Jesus is doing all this because Jesus actually loves this guy. This smug, self-righteous guy that thinks he's saved by being smarter than Jesus. Jesus is loving him. Jesus is loving him by giving him a tough story, a hard story, by drawing out what's in this guy's heart. Doctors often will listen to your heart with a stethoscope. Any of you ever been to a doctor and they listened to your heart with a stethoscope? So this is a way, some of you, again, some of you have never been to the doctor, I'm just starting to think some of you don't like to raise your hand. I'm thinking that's what's happening. But um, the doctor wants to know what's going on inside of you, right? He doesn't want to just look at the outside of you. He wants to do what he can to understand 
what's under the surface. And so I think we have a beautiful example here of Jesus listening to this guy's heart, drawing out what this guy thinks. Sometimes uh, we talk about it as the question beneath the question, right? Or sometimes we think about it as the sin beneath the sin. If you've had a bad experience with the church, tell me about that. What, well, what was that like? Let's, let's understand it. Let's, let's work that out. Let's kind of get it all out on the table. If you have real questions about God and whether or not you can count on him, well, let's, let's talk about it. Don't just answer that by like, no, you're wrong. Here's the truth. Ask people to, to share. Why? Why do you feel that way? How did you get to this place? Tell me your story. And he's drawing this out and he's listening to this guy's heart. So my, my question for us just applicationally here is, do we deal with people's heart or do we just try to keep it at an abstract level of truth? You know, well, here's the facts. See you later. Take it or leave it. Or do you take the time to get to know people? And this is really interesting. There's kind of a parallel here. He's telling a story of someone who took the time to really care for someone concretely in a way that cost him a lot. And Jesus is doing this. And at the same time, Jesus is caring for the professor's heart. He's taking the time to dig down deep, to get to know, help him understand, to show him new things, to surface his heart issues. So again, the, the three things that I think Jesus does here is he aims for the heart by asking questions more than telling him stuff, right? Asking questions more than telling him. Secondly, I think he aims for the heart by focusing on action more than just abstract theory. Theory matters, but he's, he's focusing on action here. And then he aims for the heart by engaging his imagination, by telling stories, by, by being willing to talk about, you know, another way we might say it, because we're not going to be able to just make up cool parables like Jesus, right? But um, again, just talking about life history, talking about favorite stories. Why do you love that song? You know, just kind of getting into people's heart and mind and imagination. The next thing that we see now is the professor's response. In these last two verses, we see a, a response or lack of, we might say. Professor's response, 36, 1036 says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So again, an interesting thing to see in his response is he, he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. Because again, that was a bad word. Jesus had said a bad word. Jesus, we don't talk to these people. Jesus, we don't hang out with these people. Jesus, we don't even walk through Samaria. I mean, the Jews literally, from historical reports we have in the first century, they would literally walk around it. It'd be like saying, uh, I need to go to Hillsboro, but I'm going to go around Waco, right? Which I guess makes sense because the highway's so terrible. But <laughs> imagine the highway was good right now, you know? And you're like, no, I'm not going to drive through that town because I don't even want to be around those Baylor people. They disgust me, Right? I'm not even going to drive through that city. And that's, that's the way the Jews were with the Samaritans in this time period. And so he couldn't say the Samaritan. He just had to say the one who showed him mercy. The guy that loved him was the guy that loved him, right? Who acted like a neighbor? The one that showed him mercy. Who was loving? Well, the, the loving guy, I guess, was the loving one in that story. And he, he can't even really get the words Samaritan out. It's really interesting here. I was just reading a book uh, a couple of weeks ago on preaching, and the, the guy that wrote the book on preaching was talking about how whenever we come to the Bible text, we have uh, what he calls near applications and far applications, right? 
And so here in the story, we have a good example of this. We have a very near application of what is Jesus actually doing as he deals with this guy's heart. And the near application is Jesus is actually getting this guy unsaved. That's the near application. We usually run to the far application, which is, what does it look like to love people? Well, it looks like you don't care what race they are. Um, you, you know, you spend your own money. You give them your time. You have compassion. All those things are true. All those things are absolutely true. That's the kind of love we want to exhibit in our community. But let's not jump to that before we deal with the near application. The near application is Jesus is dealing with someone here and telling them, um, it's not working out for you. You think you're saved by knowing the right stuff, but you don't actually love people. You don't actually love people. So we need to deal with that near application first. I'd say it kind of works in this order. We have to recognize First of all, that Jesus just gave an example in this story that is impossibly generous and repulsive. So he kind of just slammed him again. Coming in the side door with the story, he slammed him from two sides. Like whack, whack. Jesus, Jesus said, here's the example. Okay, the way that you inherit eternal life is perfectly loving God and perfectly loving all people all the time, no matter what, at great cost to yourself. Give away everything you've got. There's no limits. That's how you will be saved. I hope you see there that that just unsaved us. And if you have a guilty conscience this morning, if, if you are entrapped in this cycle of thinking God is pleased with me by how well I love my kids today or God is pleased with me based on how many good things I did today, this is utterly devastating news to you. And I just, I just want you to stop and recognize this, that it's actually gracious because God is helping you to see that you cannot save yourself. And that overpowering guilt that you feel, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, God is disappointed in me because I'm a failure. Jesus wants you to see that you, you can't actually be saved by loving your kids perfectly all the time because nobody does that. So, so don't jump to the second application of perfect love all the time and say, okay, that's Jesus' whole point is we need to be perfect all the time. Let's go do it. All right, let's go do it, church. Let's just be positively perfect all the time and never make a mistake. And then maybe if we do it hard enough and long enough, God will like us. Jesus is, he's unsaving him here. He's showing an impossible bar. It's a story that's repulsive, talking about Samaritans. It's a story that's impossibly generous. Um, So he's getting him unsaved. We do have an example here of what it should look like. So, So don't miss that either. We should love people. We should be generous. This is a picture of the kind of multi-ethnic, generous, no-boundaries love that the church should be marked by. But we're marked by it because first we went through the proper process of getting unsaved and recognizing I can't save myself because I don't love people all the time, and then being saved because now I've had to throw myself at God's mercy, and I've had to recognize that Jesus is my only hope. And once you really understand that Jesus is your only hope, then that pushes your heart out of being all obsessed with that and trying to save yourself by being perfect and feeling free to actually love people. Because when you're thinking that you can save yourself by by doing all the right things, it's crushing. And it cripples your ability to actually love people because it's all about you. You're always evaluating yourself. You're always measuring yourself up to other people. You're always comparing yourself. And so, so recognize the grace of the near application, the first application here that Jesus is 
as I said, I don't know any better way to say it. He's unsaving this guy. He's saying, you got you to come to terms with your own rock bottom that you're the, you're the pinnacle of Jewish society. That's still not enough. That's still not enough. I have a picture here of a, a broken axe. I was trying to think of kind of a, compre- a concrete example of this. Um, it, it would be like Jesus saying, um, eternal life is found in you chopping down trees. I know ladies are like, what are you talking about? Guys are like, yeah, that sounds cool. So eternal life is found in chopping down trees. And Jesus is having a conversation with you about it. And Jesus is like, so show me your axe. We're like, well, it's broken, Jesus. This is my axe. The picture I've got is an axe. The head came off. The guy's halfway through the log. The head broke off. That's what this conversation is. Jesus says, you're going you're gonna to find eternal life by chopping down trees. Show me your axe. It's broken. None of us have an axe that works. None of us have an axe that works. I mean, this guy is like the best of the best. He's, he's probably got like a chainsaw, right? But it's broken. It doesn't work. Um, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes you can use tools for different things. If, if you're trying to hammer a nail, you could use any broken tool for that, right? But there's specific things that you need the tool to work properly for. We've all had that experience of, of trying to use a tool to do a specific thing and it doesn't work. Well, Jesus is here confronting us with that issue. He's saying, okay, eternal life is to love God and love people perfectly all the time. Now let's inspect your, your love. Let me look at your love tool. Let me look at how you love people. Let me look at how you do that in your life. And we're like, it's, it's broken, Jesus. It's broken. And so there's this really interesting dynamic here. Um, Jaron Bars talks about this in his book, Learning Evangelism from Jesus. He says, do we have enough faith to trust God and, and be like Jesus is in this moment where we, we show someone that they're not making it, that, that they're not saved, and, and we don't even give them the memorized gospel? Like, like Jesus doesn't say, come to me, you who are now weary and heavy burdened. He just, he just leaves them hanging. Are we willing to leave people hanging sometimes? Now, again, we're not Jesus. So granted, we're going to mess this up left and right. You know, we can't make up awesome, perfect parables. We can't always know people's hearts. I mean, obviously, there's, there's limits. But I do think Jesus, as someone who is both fully God but also fully man, he is an example for us to follow. He shows us how to deal with people according to their heart. And Jesus shows us in multiple other places that he's willing to leave someone hanging. He's willing to leave someone hanging with the reality and the tension of, I'm not saved so that they would be hungry to know, well, how can I be saved? I think sometimes we rush to the punchline and we don't allow people to really wrestle with their need. P- people need to see their neediness of Jesus before they're willing to hear that Jesus is the answer. So again, this is, this is a very sensitive thing. I, I don't know how we know this. I don't know how we know to do this like Jesus did apart from just prayer. You know, God, help, help me to have that kind of wisdom that I would know when to leave someone hanging. That sounds terrible. You know, for me, I, I would just think, I mean, I'm a preacher, so I just compulsively would want to be like, but Jesus loves you, died on the cross for your sins, you know, and then run away. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to just leave them hanging with, you know, I haven't finished the story. But Jesus is totally willing to do that. So that's a question for us. Are, are we willing to leave people hanging the way that Jesus does? Jesus does it, again, I believe, because he's loving him. 
is helping him get to that place where he's willing and ready to hear the rest of the story. Well, I want to just wrap up thinking about another lens to look at the story through. Um, We kind of talked about seeing it through the lens of Jesus. How does Jesus deal with this guy? How does Jesus love this guy who's trying to trap him? Then we talked a little bit about seeing it through the lens of the theology professor as well. You know, are we sometimes like this guy that thinks we're justified, that tries to justify ourselves by knowing the right answers, by tripping people up? Well, a third lens I'd like you to think about is thinking of it through the lens of the victim. Uh, Because I think really when you stand back and you look at the broader gospel story, that's where we really see the gospel and see Jesus highlighted in this story. Because in this story, in the way we understand our own spiritual condition, is because of our own sin and because of other people's sin against us, we've been beaten up and stripped and left for dead spiritually. We are broken. We're the ones laying on the roadside unable to fix ourselves, unable to save ourselves. And in this story, then, Jesus is the one, like the Good Samaritan, who comes and has compassion on us, who loves us, who binds up our wounds, who deals with us graciously, who spends everything he has. The story goes that not only does he spend his time and his money and his effort to care for us and to put us back together, but he was actually broken for us. He was actually beaten for us. He was actually stripped for us. He was left for dead for us. But the the good news is that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, conquering sin and death once and for all, showing that he's the good one that showed compassion to us. And so now we have this response of recognizing all the goodness that Jesus showed us, and that should motivate us to want to be good, to want to love others. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you that you love us and you've shown us grace in Jesus. God, this is in many ways a tough story and so we pray that you'd help us to wrestle with both the near and the far application of recognizing sometimes people need to come to terms with with seeing their own system of righteousness, their own self-justification is is not working. So God, help us to, to deal graciously with people's hearts. Help us to lead people to seeing their own need of you in a loving and kind way. God, we also thank you that that you're the one that showed that ultimate kindness to us, that when we were beat up, that when we were broken, you came and you showed mercy to us. We thank you for that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.